Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. Just put your hand up in the air. We'll have some people rush you a Bible. We want you to have the Word of God in your lap. We are continuing the verse-by-verse study through the book of Ephesians, which I've entitled Rags to Riches, and rightly so, I believe, because no matter who you are, uh, we've all been born estranged from God, fatherless orphans, really, who were completely spiritually bankrupt. Listen, we had nothing. We could obtain nothing uh, to help our situation. We were hopeless sinners clothed in rags of filth, but God who is rich in his mercy. He, through this miraculous process called adoption, has cleansed us, clothed us. He has saved us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and that is my story. That is your story. That is our story if we are believers today. Praise the Lord. What a story it is that we can uh, proclaim not only uh, to each other, but to those who have no hope. It is truly an incredible, incredible uh, book that is going to illustrate powerfully all that God has done. And I'll tell you what, the first chapter of Ephesians is, has set the pace, set the course for what we will uh, continue to consider throughout the book. It is deep and rich, full of all kinds of theological truths, man. And uh, I am excited every week to come and share what God has shown me through my study. And this week is no different from last week or the week before. It is so exciting. God has done incredible things. And what I'm finding more and more as I continue to sit at the feet of Jesus, as I read the Word of God, that, you know, God has done everything. Like, there isn't a great amount of work you have to do. Really, you have to do nothing. He's done it all. And if you will just allow him to, to work in you and through you, you will see incredible results. It's simply a matter of surrender and dying to yourself. That, that's really what I think the collective book of Galatians, or Galatians, Ephesians is all about. It's about what God has done, what he has given us, and the fact that we can rest in his finished work on the cross. So if you missed any of that, you can pick it up on our website, www cccolumbia.org, or you can check it out on our podcast. Uh, as we come to Ephesians chapter 2, we come to yet another phenomenon which changes everything for you and I. It is called grace. Now, we know it as unmerited favor, and that is an appropriate definition for the word in sim simplistic terms, but I want to go a little deeper with the word. It means far more than that. And in fact, in the Hebrew, it's the, it's the word hain. It describes a camp of protection or a graceful and precious place of freedom, compassion, and beauty. In the Greek, it is the word haris. It means that which affords pleasures or delight, loving kindness or favor. It is undeserved kindness. It is an action in which God has given, a sovereign act upon God, uh, upon those who are unworthy and undeserved. I like the way that early 20th century theologian Benjamin Warfield said how he defined it. He said, grace is free, sovereign favor 
to the ill-deserved. To the ill-deserved. I like that. I think it's accurate. Grace is free. It means you can't buy it. You can't earn it. It's free. It's a gift to you and I. Therefore, you have to receive it. It's not something you can do to get it. God has given it, and therefore you have to receive it. How has he given it? By way of sovereignty. What does that mean? He can give it to whoever he wants, whenever he wants. That's what it means. Oh, well, who has he given it to? He's given it to everyone. How do we know? Because the Bible says so. John chapter 3, verse 16. You know the verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He, he goes on to say that those, uh, he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So God has given us this common grace uh, who has a face. His name is Jesus. And he has given us all of, all, every person that has ever lived, this common grace, Jesus Christ. But more specifically, God has given his grace to you. To me? Yeah, to you. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. What does that mean? That means that every one of us has been given God's grace. There's not one single person that doesn't have his grace. The, the, the issue becomes whether we receive it or not. It's a gift. And so if I come to you and I try and deliver to you a gift, if you don't receive it, then you, you don't have the gift, do you? It's not that I haven't extended the gift to you. It's simply that you haven't received it, okay? But if I receive it, then I have it. It's offered, and it's continually offered over and over and over again. He, here's, what, here's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. He said that God has given you enough grace for whatever it is that you need. You know, his grace is sufficient. He said it a little differently. As it, as it related to his own personal story with the Lord. But God has given you enough grace to outweigh your sin. His grace is enough for you. Whatever, whatever you've done, he has given you more grace than, than what you've done. He has is, he is outweighed it. The scale is tipped, right? There's more grace in your bucket than there is sin. You can't out-sin the grace of God because he gives you the measure in which you need. Praise the Lord for that. He has done these things for us. That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 20b, he said, But where sin increases, grace abounded all the more. Praise the Lord for that. You can't out-sin God's grace. Listen, are you thankful for that this morning? I am so thankful for that. When sin showed up, God's grace showed up the more. I'm calling this message, Grace Changes Everything. Grace changes everything. It is a game changer. Think for a moment with me. What the world would be like without God's grace? What would the world be like without God's grace? If God didn't give you his grace, he didn't extend his unmerited favor for you, and yet you would have to reach him somehow in your own merit, on your own way, what would your, your world look like? We would all be desperately lost. We would all be desperately lost. It would be uh, in hopeless situation. We would get what we deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve wrath and condemnation. That's exactly what we deserve. There's not, there is no, uh, you know, there's one category as it relates to the human uh, race, and that is, you know, as it relates to what God has done, that is, you know, as we sit be before him outside of grace, 
the only thing that we will get is wrath and condemnation. If God gave us what we deserved, that is what we would get. But because God is kind towards us, because He is gracious, He has built a camp called grace, which uh, is a place of protection and a place of where He cares for us, where we can experience freedom and compassion and favor, not because we deserve it, but because God freely gives it. It's free to you, but listen to this. It costs Jesus everything. Don't think for a moment that grace was extended to you without you first being delivered up and paid for, without you first having to be brought to justice. Justice was served on your behalf on the cross. Jesus paid the price. He paid for your sin. Now, when we believe upon him, that common grace of Jesus Christ converts into what we call saving grace. It's faith that, that takes the common grace of God that he extends to everyone, right? His unmerited favor towards you. Even unbelievers, God had unmerited favor for you. And at, at when, upon the point in which you believed in Jesus Christ, that common grace became saving grace. Saving grace where God adopted you into the family of God, where you were, your sins were forgiven, you were cleansed, you were saved by faith because of God's grace. God gave his son for you. That's how much he loves you. I, I love the, the old hymn by John Newton, Amazing Grace. The words are so apropos for what we're studying today. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. T'was blind, but now I see. Jesus Christ has, uh, because of what he's done on the cross for you, you have been extended not only common grace, but you have been given saving grace. Thank you, Lord, for that. Someone once said that um, only those who truly are, are aware of their sin can truly cherish grace. You know, sometimes we don't necessarily consider the grace that God has given us, but when we look ourselves in the mirror and we really see who we are, that's when we truly appreciate God's grace. We say like, oh, Lord, how could you love me? How, how could you, you know, look what I've done with my life, Lord. Look how I've lived. I've, I've turned my back on you. I've done all these things. And you know what the Lord says to you? My grace is sufficient for you. I love you. I want to be in relationship with you. I will pay the price for you. And he did through his son. You can't truly appreciate what God has given you until you are first faced with who you really are. That is the first step in salvation, folks. Lord Jesus, I am a what? Sinner. I have to recognize who I am, that I am a sinner. I have to recognize that I have fallen short of the glory of God. And then I recognize the grace that was given for me, and I put my faith in him, Jesus. And all of a sudden, my world changes. Why? Grace changes everything. Without grace, there is no cross, folks. Without grace, there is no hope. But through grace, your entire life changes. That is what we're going to consider this morning. Paul wants us to understand that in the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, Grace changes everything. And this is illustrated in four points. And I have them up here for you to write down. Uh, it, the, the first point that we'll consider is why we need God's grace, found in verses 1 through 3. Then we will consider how God's grace works for us in verses 4 through 7. 
how God's grace works in us in verses 8 through 9, and finally, how, God gra- how God's grace works through us in verse 10. Let's consider first why we need the grace of God. Look with me at verse 1 there, and it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, if you have a King James Version, God bless you, and a New King James Version, uh, your version says, and you, he made alive who were dead in trespass and sins in which you once walked. But notice that in your Bible, the words he made alive are in italics. Why? Because they weren't in the original text. That's why it's in italics. It's, it's stating to you in your Bible that this was not in the original text. Why is it in there then? Uh, what are they doing? Well, the, the translators are just simply trying to bring, uh, to make it clear exactly what God has done for you. It doesn't change the Word of God, but it, it was not in the original manuscript. That's why they noted as such. You know, when you find things like that in your Bible, you should look at the footnotes and see what that means. But that is why it is in italics. The, the accurate translation uh, is, is rendered in the ESV, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, Paul immediately gives us to why, the why to the what. The what is grace. The why is because you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. Now, who is he speaking to? You. He's speaking to you. Who? Me? Yeah, you. All of you. Now, contextually, he's speaking to those believers in Ephesus, but this applies to all of humanity. Every person that has ever been born has been born spiritually dead. We are dead. You are not physically dead, obviously. You, you're breathing. But in the Garden of Eden, when, when God created man, he created us in three beings, body, mind, and spirit. And what happened at the fall of man is Adam, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, immediately they experienced spiritual death. The Spirit of God was dead in them. They were dead spiritually. Of course, they were dying physically and mentally. They were dying, but they were dead spiritually immediately. And every person that has ever been born on the face of the earth, aside from Jesus Christ, has been born under the headship of Adam. That means that you and I are born spiritually dead. You're only two-thirds of a person. You need the other third. You need the Spirit of God within you. He needs to breathe His life in you. If you, you know, you are dead unless He has made you alive. And the way that He makes you alive is by grace through faith in Christ. And, and so, Paul is establishing for us who we once were. Notice it's past tense. He's speaking to believers, and he's helping believers to understand this, who they really were, but he's also speaking to unbelievers and helping them understand who they are, who you really are before the Lord. You're dead. You're dead. You, you, you can't ha- discern or you can't receive spiritual truth because it, the flesh can't do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are fully to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Listen, you have, if you're not in Christ today, or, you know, before you came to Christ, you had zero capacity to understand spiritual truth. You know that? 
That's why, you know, I totally get now why when I would come to church as an unbeliever, you know, to appease my wife or whoever it was, I wasn't going for God. I was going for somebody else. But when I would sit in that seat and I would, I would literally feel like I was before Charlie Brown's teacher. Wonk, 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 wonk. Because I literally could not discern spiritual truth. Why? Because I was dead. But God changed the course of my life. You know, he gave me the capacity to hear his voice. That's grace, folks. Didn't deserve it. Neither did you. But God did that work in your heart. He gave you a measure of faith to believe. He did that work. Yeah, what Paul tells us here, he's, he said it's past tense for believers, hopefully. It's, it's not that we become sinless. Don't misunderstand. You just hopefully sin less. There is no sinless perfection. But because you come into Christ, you used to walk this way, right? It was not even a, you didn't have a choice. You just, that's the way you lived your life. Now, you walk hopefully on the path of righteousness and you maybe stumble along the way, right? But before, you were falling down the entire time. What he wants you to understand is that you were dead in the trespasses and sins that you once walked in. What a trespass literally means to cross the line. Imagine there is a, a line drawn, and you look at that line like a little kid does, right? And you toe the line at first, and then you go, step over it. And you, you, that's what we did, spiritually speaking. No one taught you that. You were born that way. You were born to cross the line. Doesn't matter what line it is, you were born to cross it. Uh, as parents, as you're raising your kids, you need to understand that. Your kids are born to cross the line. They're spiritually dead if they haven't come to Christ. So, you know, you can have some outward conformance, but you want to have an inward change, right? You want them to be transformed so that they understand, I don't want to cross the line anymore because that line is God's line. I don't want to do that anymore. To, to, to trespass literally means to willfully rebel against God. To sin, we know what the word means. It's, it's, a, it, it, it's, it's a term that literally means to miss the mark. Like there's a bullseye and you've totally missed it. You know, the, the, the idea is that you and I have fallen completely short. We haven't even, we can't, we didn't hit the paper, folks. We didn't even come close to hitting the target. We've completely missed it as it relates to what God has done. Why? Because we're spiritually dead. Sinners sin because they're sinners. They don't become sinners when they sin. They're already sinners, and that's why they sin, you see? A liar doesn't lie uh, because he let me think about this for a second before I mess myself up. A liar doesn't lie because when he lies, it doesn't make him a liar. He becomes a li he, he's a liar and therefore he lies. Man, I'm totally messing that up. But you get the point. It's so hard in my mind to comprehend. But that is the truth. The reality is, you know, we are totally depraved people. Totally depraved people. We are people that are not good. And I know that hurts people's feelings to hear that. But that is the truth. We are spiritually depraved people. We have no capacity to not only do the right thing, but we don't even want to do the right thing. We, even want, we don't have the desire to do the right, the right thing. That is what dead people, how dead people respond to God through depravity, through trespass, through sin. Now, this brings up an interesting point. Just how dead are we? How dead are we? This is one of those theological discussions that people have, and they say, man, 
you know, uh, there is one side of the camp that will say, you were so dead, you were so dead that you couldn't respond to the gospel at all. Therefore, God had to come and regenerate you before you could even believe. So God did saving, the saving work upon your heart before you even uh, came to that place. Now, the other side of the camp is this, that, you know, God has, although we are sinful people, God has still given us enough good that we can choose him and that we can walk upon his path. I think both of them are incorrect. I think they both err. And here's why. Because although we are sinful people, God is a gracious God. And the Bible tells us, Romans chapter 12, verse 3, that he has given each of us a measure of faith. So although we are spiritually dead, although we have no capacity, we have no desire, God has somehow, and I can't explain it to you, but he has somehow put within you, given you the capacity to respond. But you have to understand that he has done the work already in you. He's already done, uh, he's already done the work. I like the way that uh, David Guzik said it. He said, um, this is... This touches one of the most controversial areas in theology. In what manner or to what extent is a person dead before conversion? Must a person be converted before he can believe? Or can there be a prior work of God to instill faith that is still short of conversion? Those who argue that man must be regenerated before he can believe like to say that a dead man cannot believe. This takes the particular description further than intended to say that unredeemed man is exactly like a dead man because a dead man also cannot sin. Makes sense, right? If we're going to take the extent of describing ourselves as completely dead people that can't respond to God at all, then therefore dead people can't do a lot of other things too. Namely sin. Dead people also couldn't sin. So what is the true meaning of that word? And, th and that's what he gets to. He, he goes on, he says, we err if we think that dead in trespasses and sins says everything about man's lost condition. It is an error because the Bible uses many different pictures to describe the state of the unsaved man, saying he is blind in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4, a slave to sin, Romans 6, 17, a lover of darkness, John 3, 19 through 20, sick, Mark 2, 17, lost, Luke 15, an alien, a stranger, a foreigner, Ephesians 12, 2, 12, verse, and also verse 19, a child of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3, under the power of darkness, Colossians 1.13. Therefore, in some ways, the unregenerated man is dead. In other ways, he is not. The bottom line is this, folks, that we know that the Bible says this, John 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws him. That is the truth. But, it, but the Bible also says in John, for John 1, 12 through 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become child, a children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, listen, but of God. God has to draw you. You can't come to Christ unless the Father draws you. At the very same token, you must receive him. You must receive him. That is the only thing you must do. You have to respond to what he's already done. No one will stand before God on judgment day and say, this is your fault. You did this to me. God has extended the hand of grace to every person. He has given you the capacity to understand who he is. And he's waiting for you to respond. And, and no response is a response. No response is a response.
If you haven't responded to the grace of God today, then may today be the day that you do. Because what Paul is saying is that you were dead, you were hopeless. There is no hope for you. But God sent his son for you. He loves you and he wants to save you. But you have to respond to it. Paul goes on to further define for us what this rebellion and failure looks like. Look at the verse, uh, second part of verse 2. He says, you were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Listen, contrary to popular belief, I don't care if it's your mom or whoever it is that told you this, you are not a natural-born leader, okay? You are not. The Bible says so right here. My mom told me I was a natural-born leader. She's wrong. The Bible supersedes what she has to say or he has to say, right? You're not born a natural-born leader. What you are born is a natural-born follower. You are a natural-born follower. And here's the thing is, there's only two paths, and there are two princes of those two paths. You, you either become a follower of Jesus Christ, or you become a follower of the devil, Satan himself. There is no other choice. You either follow Jesus that leads to a stairway to heaven, or you follow the devil that leads to a what? Highway to hell. You either get Zeppelin or you get ACDC. You choose. You get the option, right? So there you go. Here's what you need to understand about this, though. You were born by way of the fall to automatically follow the devil, to automatically follow the course of this world in its depravity and the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan. The power of the air there is speaking about the minions of Satan, speaking about the fallen angels that he, he is ruling over. What we need to understand is something cataclysmic happened at the fall. Not only was all humanity lost, but there seems to be a transfer of ownership or rulership of the world, of the earth, where perhaps, you know, because Adam was given dominion over everything that was here, that when he fell, all of humanity and all of creation was lost becoming under the power and the rule of Satan. Now, we get that God is sovereign and he allowed this. So ultimately, God is in control of everything, yes. But through the sovereignty of God, he's allowed for the enemy to be the ruler of this world. Jesus said it himself. He said Satan is the ruler of this world. John chapter 12, verse 31, and John chapter 14, verse 30. You can look that up later. Jesus himself said it. You want to argue? with me about it? No, argue with Jesus about it. That's what he said. He said the devil is the ruler of this world. However, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he bought back all of humanity and all of the earth. And in fact, there's, there's a point in which the book of Revelation, where there is a title, there is a, a scroll that's given, and the only person that's worthy to open the scroll is Jesus himself. Why? Because he was crucified for the sins of the world. He paid the price to buy the world back. And when he, and, and many believe that that scroll is the title deed to the earth that was lost by Adam and Eve. Could be. But here's what we do know. We were born as a result of that fall under, the, we, were, we began to follow the devil. 
Now, you probably didn't do rituals at your house or anything like that, but listen, immediately you became a son of disobedience. You became a son of disobedience, a daughter of disobedience. How do we know? Uh, you ever seen a little child, you know, tell their parents no? Did, were they taught that? No, that's part of their nature. That is part of who they are. They are born that way. And so every person that has ever, uh, you know, been born apart from Jesus has been born under this curse. And your, your motto for following that path is still kill and destroy. That is, that's who the enemy is. You, know, you deal with those three enemies. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Those are the things that you were, th that is the path that you were on when you're born. It's a sad state. And we, we see this in the world today. We can see the evidence of the sons of disobedience, can we not? As we continue to watch our world just fall apart. We watch evil continually rising. We see, you know, people, you know, killing other people. We see people robbing other people. We see people destroying other people. It's in the cards. You're a follower of the enemy. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. Man, what a dagger in the back of somebody who thinks they're righteous. And Jesus says, oh, no, you are of your father, the devil. There is only one way to be righteous. There's only one way to be a follower of Jesus, and it's by grace through faith in him. It's the only way. Now, Paul says that we all acted out of that depravity and we gave way for the flesh. Now, when he talks about the flesh, he's not talking about the physical body. He's talking about the corrupt nature. He's, you know, when anytime the Bible mentions the flesh, that is what it's referring to. It's referring to the fallen nature. He's saying out of the fallen nature, you gave way for your body and your mind to give, to give into its desires. Its desires are what? You're corrupt, so they're corrupt desires. They are desires for sin. And so he tells you, listen, you were born in that state. You're born to, and, and it's two-thirds of the people, two-thirds of your person, right? The body and the mind. You need the Spirit to counteract that. It, when the Spirit of God comes in, everything changes. You have power now to resist the flesh. You, you have desires to please the Lord. But prior to that, you don't. Prior to that, even religious people who seem to be really good moral people Listen, they're self-serving. They're self-serving. There's pride. There's something there that will not allow them to bow their knee to Jesus Christ. You know, and so the Lord would say, listen, you're just as corrupt. You may have grown up in a Christian home, and you might feel like, you know, like, well, I don't really have a big, big story. And, you know, you just go to church, and you've been doing this all your life, and you think, like, I've always kind of been a good person. You're not a good person. I don't care what kind of, I mean, you could be part of the Thacker tribe. doesn't matter. doesn't matter how you grow up, right? has no bearing whatsoever about who you are. You are as, I can't remember what my cousin calls it, but a disgusting, vile creature. You are. Sorry, but that's the truth. You need Jesus. You can be morally good on the outside, but you are completely corrupt before God on the inside. Your best works are filthy rags before the Lord, the Bible says. You need Jesus. Paul says that we manifested 
this corrupt nature through our body and mind. We allow that. And therefore, we became, we were born, we didn't become, we were born by nature children of God, right? No, children of wrath. You were born a child of wrath. Uh, contrary to popular belief, every person that is born is not a child of God. You're a creation of God. You are not a child of God. You become a child of God when you accept Christ. Bef before that, folks, you are a child of wrath. You are a child of wrath, and you will experience his wrath. What is that? Wrath literally means divine punishment based on God's angry judgment against someone to punish. The only kind of children that are born into this world are children of wrath. Listen, you are by default, destined for wrath. But the Bible tells us, thankfully, those who have converted, those who have been regenerated, who have been born again, that you are not appointed to wrath. That God has saved you from that. Why? Because Jesus took your wrath. Don't think that the wrath wasn't poured out. It was poured out. It was poured out on Jesus. He did, the, he did the work for you. You don't have to worry about that. He did it for you. You were default, born that way. Understand, it is not undeserved either. It is not undeserved. The, God's wrath is not undeserved. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You, you had your part in it. Listen, you, you sin because, you know, you're a sinner, but understand that you sin because you like it. There's things that you do because you like to do it. Like, you know, yeah, your nature is fallen and corrupt and all of that kind of stuff, but... But the, things, the, the sins that you, you know, engage in are things that you like to do. That's why you do them. You do them because you have a nature to do them. You, you don't care, you know, really necessarily what God thinks about it. You just, you like it. That's why you do it. Now, as a Christian, your whole mindset changes. Everything about you changes. You say, Lord, help me not to do that things. And your sins that you maybe once enjoyed become really vile to you. You think, Lord, I don't want to do these things. And it's grievous to you when you fall. There's a difference. Before you wanted to do it, you had really no choice, but you also wanted to do it. You engaged in it. But when you became a Christian, God gave you power over it. You don't have to. God set you free. Now, you're going to stumble along the way. Pick yourself up. Ask the Lord, repent, and move forward. Live in the power that Christ has given you. He paid the price. He shed his blood so that you could have power over whatever it is that you're dealing with, right? So, so ask the Lord, to change your heart about it. Lord, give me your desires. Help me to see my sin the way that you see it, Lord. May it be disgusting to me as it is to you. Paul tells us in Romans 3.10 through 12, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It's not even a matter of wanting to do good. No one even had a desire to do good. That's why we need grace, folks. We need grace because of that. We're absolutely desperate for His grace, and I hope that you realize that, and I hope that you still are desperate for His grace today because you need it today just as much as you did the moment you converted, right? I love the way that Jerry Bridges said this. He said, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. True. But listen to this. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. So true. So true. It doesn't matter how long you've walked with the Lord, you should be desperately in need of His grace today. You should be saying, Lord, thank you for your grace. I need it so desperately. Thank you for giving it to me, Lord. 
He is so gracious to us. Now, that brings us to verse 4, which is hands down the most impactful two words you've ever read in the Bible, but God. But God. Here's the transition. Paul says, listen, here's who you were, or here's who you are, one or the other. You choose. But God. But God. See, God, God did something on your behalf. It, you know, it was either in past tense when you came to conversion or it is in present tense or future tense. But, he, but God, he intervened in your situation. He saw who you were from the foundation of the world and he injected himself into humanity, became a man, died on a cross, um, was laid in a grave and rose from the dead for you. But God, now here's the, here's, the, here's the impact that should continue to make in your life is that there is a but God in every circumstance of your life. It doesn't matter what you're going through today. There is still a but God. But God, you can, as a Christian, you should never in a million years factor God out of anything. Man, you know, they, they've, they're, they're totally done with the marriage. They've checked out. They're, listen, but God. You trust the Lord. You know, they, they diagnosed me with this thing, and now I'm, doctor says I have a week to live, but God. You, you need to preach that to yourself in whatever circumstance you find yourself in because God is for you. He's for you. He is at work on your behalf in the, in the moment, in the circumstance, and the Bible promises you that whatever it is that he is doing, it's for your good. Now, some of us, we know that theologically, and, and I would say all of us understand that theologically, but practically speaking, it doesn't feel that way. We can't see in a million years how God could work out this circumstance that I'm going through for my good. I don't get it, Lord. And you become frustrated with God because of it. You're like, Lord, you said that this was going to be for my good. You know, here's the thing, is that God knows you, and he knows what you're going through. It does, you know, he knows that the, the circumstance that you are presently experiencing is difficult. But in the midst of it, he is fashioning and forming you into the image of Christ. His son suffered greatly for us. And what he's trying to help us understand and is that, listen, humanity has fallen, but there's always hope. There's always hope in every circumstance. Yeah, it might be hard. The difficulty, you know, it might be unbearable, but what God wants you to know is that he's in the midst of it with you. You're not experiencing, you're not experiencing it alone, number one, and you're also not experiencing something that he hasn't already experienced for you. He is making you more like his son. Sometimes that means even through suffering. Jesus loves us that much, you know, and maybe it's a matter of, hey, you know, God refining you, or maybe it's a matter of him just showing you how faithful you really are to him. I don't know. But what we do know is we can trust his word. And even beyond our feelings, I, I doesn't feel like I'm, I'm really, how, how, you can, how can you do this, God? You know, we have to trust him beyond what, how we feel about something. What does his word say? And then we trust him in it. God is at work in you because he is for you. There is always a but God. He goes on and he says, Here, here's why God it gives us grace because he is rich in mercy because of the great love 
with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul wants us to understand a little bit about God. He wants us to understand here that the reason God extends grace to us is number one, because he is merciful. Because he is rich in mercy. That word mercy literally means just in simplistic terms that you don't get what you deserve. You don't get what you deserve. Now somebody else got it, namely Jesus. But you're not getting what you deserve because God is rich in mercy. God is looking for every angle, I promise you, to not give you what you deserve. You know that? Like he is trying to reach the, the lost people in every single capacity that he can. He's, he's trying to reach out to them because he does not want to give you what you deserve. That's the love of God. That he does not want to give you what you deserve. And he'll go to great extent, even to the point of inserting some Christian in your life out of the blue to tell you about Jesus because he loves you that much. He doesn't want you to get what you deserve. Not only that, why is he gracious? Why is he merciful? What is the source of his grace? It's his love. It's the love of God that motivates him to be merciful and gracious to us. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. What amazing love that God has for you and I. His love is so amazing that, listen, he didn't love you at your best. He loved you at your worst. That's true love. When somebody takes a marriage vow, it's for better or better, right? No, it's for better or worse. What you're saying is, I don't care what I'm choosing in this moment to say that no matter what condition I find you in, I will love you. And I will stick, stick through with you, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work through whatever it is because I love you. God said that from the foundation of the world before you were ever even born. He said, I love you. I love who you were before I love who you are. I loved who you were before I loved who you are. He loved you at your worst. He loved you in all of your corruptness. He loved you when you wanted nothing to do with him. He still loved you. God is not waiting for, you, for a better version of you to love. He loves you in your current state, and he loved you before that. And his love doesn't change when you come to Christ. You have the same love. He has the same love for you uh, post-Christ as he did pre-Christ. Do you know that? You don't get more favor from him because you came to Christ. You have already have his favor even as an unbeliever. He loves you. And that's why he is merciful and gracious to us because he's a loving God. He's a loving God. He knew you and I. And yet he still loved us. What did he do? He made us alive in Christ. That phrase right there, made alive in Christ, literally means you were regenerated, you were born again. By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, God 
caused you to be born again. You were dead, and now you are alive. Listen, in Christ. It's in Jesus Christ. Notice, it's grace that you have been saved. He follows that up with. This is God's grace at work for us. When you were not able, incapable of following the right path, God loved you anyway. And he extended his hand of grace to you. Therefore, you become what? A trophy of grace. Like you're on the mantle in heaven that God says, look what I've done. You might not feel like a trophy, but God is, listen, if God has a gigantic refrigerator in heaven and your picture's on it, because he's displaying you before all of heaven, and he's saying, this is my son, this is my daughter, I love them, I love them. And, and the enemy is right behind you saying, you love that? You love that? And Jesus Christ steps up and says, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. He paid the price. Even while you were yet still sinners, Christ died for you. How amazing is God's grace. You were made alive in Christ by grace through faith. Now, notice not only that, but then you were seated in heavenly places. Positionally, right now, if you're a believer, positionally you were seated in Christ in the heavenlies. Now, practically, you haven't gotten there yet. But the way that God sees it, you're already there. Positionally, you are seated in Christ. So whatever Christ has, you have because you're seated with him. Where's he seated? He's seated in the place of honor. He's seated at the right hand. Therefore, he has extended to you what he's been given. This is the whole point of the book of uh, Ephesians is that you understand the riches that you've been given in Christ. Why do we have riches? Because we're in Christ. Well, what does that mean? That means that we are adopted. That means we are saved. We are justified. And we are glorified. This is already done for you. We're not waiting to be glorified. God sees you as being glorified already. You're just waiting to make it happen. You know, the Bible tells us this is not our home. When we, when we become a Christian, our citizenship is no longer here. It's in heaven. Why? Because positionally we are seated in Christ in the heavenly places. God sees you as that. I wonder if you saw yourself like that, if that would change anything. If that would change the way that you live your life. If you think like, wait a second, I'm seated in Christ. If I'm seated in Christ, Christ doesn't do this stuff. I better, you know, I, I wonder how it would change. Christ, Christ loves people. I wonder how it would cause you to love people. What would, it, what would it do if you were to continually remind yourself, I'm seated in Christ positionally. Let me live it out that way, Lord. Help me to act like I'm seated with Christ. What happened in this moment of conversion where you were born again is Satan's dominion is diminished. It's gone. He has no more power over you. He, 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 he is, you've gone from a citizen of this world to a citizen of heaven. God has uh, taken you from, becoming a, from being a child of wrath to a child of God. You were in Christ and thus you have everything that Christ has. And what he goes on to say is, and this is something interesting, maybe you've never considered before, but do you know for all of eternity you will, you will, he will continue to unveil his grace to you? Well, I thought we were going to know everything in heaven. Oh, listen, there's too much to know about God. You're not going to know, you're going to know as you were known, but God is going to continue to, you're going to be a learner of who he is for all of eternity. He's going to unveil his grace to you. And what is amazing, I think probably more than anything is that you're going to see it displayed for all of eternity. 
by the marks of the cross upon the body of Jesus Christ. He will be as he was crucified. Those marks will be on his body in heaven. And you will see him and you'll say like, Lord, your grace, your grace, Lord. How amazing is your grace. God went to work for you. God is at, God's grace is at work in you. Look at verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In verses 4 through 7, we consider God's grace at work for us. Here we consider God's grace at work in us. Notice, for by grace. This is the catalyst for salvation, folks. It's grace first. Without grace, we have no faith because God would not have given us his son, who is the manifest grace of God, Jesus Christ. Because God has given us grace, now we have something to believe in. We have a person to believe in, somebody who physically, tangibly came to this earth, who gave up his body for you, who died and rose again from the dead. God has also given you the faith to believe. Now, this is amazing to me because as I consider the concept of salvation more and more, I realize that, it, that it's really less and less about what I do in the process. It's everything about what God has done. Did you not read that? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not even of your own self, of your own doing. You didn't muster up enough faith to believe in God. He gave it to you. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is if you don't feel special, then you probably don't understand it. Because God thinks you're so special that he not only gave you his son to believe, but then he also extended the ability for you to believe in him. And he said, here, believe. Now, you can accept it or you can deny it. That's, that's the reality of what he's given us. He's given us the capacity to either receive it or reject it. Why? Because it's a gift. Right? I can choose it or I cannot choose it. But if I do, understand it's all him, 100%. You didn't do anything. He did it all. He gave you his son, and he gave you the ability to believe. Therefore, if you boast, you should boast in one thing, Jesus Christ. If you boast, you should boast in the God of heaven who gave his son for you and also gave you the ability to believe. Don't you dare boast about how good you are, how incredibly smart you are, how in tune to the spirit you are. It, listen, we're going to go on here, and, and he's going to say, again, even the things that you do are not of yourself. They're things that God created for you, for you to do. It's not because you're super spiritual. It's because God is incredibly loving and merciful and kind, and he has extended in every opportunity for you to believe. And some of you, be it few, right? The road is few that lead, that, that the path is narrow, and the, and the uh, there are few that find it, right? But the road to destruction is wide and many go that way. The choice is yours. But if you do believe, understand this, that it's all God, 100%. He did it all. The only thing that you did was said, God, I received the gift that you've given me. Thank you. Lastly, we consider God's grace at work through us. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus Four good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Grace leads us home, folks. It leads us home. It puts us on a path to reveal who we are. Who are you? You're his workmanship. You're his workmanship. That, that word there in the Greek literally means you are his poem. You are his work of art. You are his masterpiece. Listen, Shakespeare has nothing on God. You are an incredible display of, of poetry, of art before the Lord. You're his masterpiece. You are uniquely written in the blood of Christ, folks. That is how God made you his masterpiece. You know, I was thinking about this. When you watch, you guys ever watch those restoration shows, you know, old houses, old cars, old whatever it is, and, you know, you, you see somebody take something that is really literally a hunk of junk, right? Probably completely, not, not really worth anything, right? And they take it, and they make it something incredible. You're thinking, is that the same piece of furniture that they found in that barn that was all dilapidated, and, you know, and everything? Or is that the same car that they had that was all rusted out and holes in it, no interior or anything? Oh, my, you know, you look at, listen, that's what God has done in your life. You know, you are being, you, you, are, you are completely 100% restored in Christ as it relates to God. But, it, but here, while we're walking it out practically, we are, we are living out that restoration process where God is just continually sanding us down, putting a little, polishing us here, painting us up here, where he is, he, is, he is fashioning us and making us into the image of Christ. And he's proud of what he's doing. Listen, he's super proud of what he's doing. And, and the reality is, is that it cost him. You think about what it cost him. You think like, wow, I'm not worth that. But he thinks you are. It cost him his son, but, but he thinks you're worth it. That is an incredible display of grace that God can take you and he can mold you and make you into what he calls a masterpiece. You're his workmanship. You belong to him. So here's what that means. He can shape you however he wants because you're his. You know, our life is not our own. We don't get to tell God what we will do and what we won't do. The, the idea is this, God, I will do whatever you want me to do. Why? Because I'm your, work, I'm your workmanship. I'm your piece of art. I don't know what's best. You know what's best. And trust me, he is, he is working out a plan. He has a blueprint of your life. And he knows exactly where he's taking you. And he knows exactly why he's taking you where he's taking you. And he knows exactly what he's going to do when you get there. How do we know? Because the Bible tells us right here. It says, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Why is he doing this work in your life? For good works. That's why. He is doing it because he has a plan for your life and he has a purpose for you. Like he didn't just save you just so you could go to heaven. He saved you so that you could be uh, the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. Like he saved you for something greater. He saved you to serve. That's what he did. This is God's grace at work through you that God could use you. Me? Yeah, you. Listen. You don't have to figure out how he can use you because the Bible says that he created these works for you to walk in before you were even born. The only thing that we have to do, as I said before, 
is surrender to his will and walk in his ways. That's it. That's it. If you do that, you're going to be on the path that he has you on. You're going to be in the place that you need to be. You're going to say what you need to say. You're going to do what you need to do because he has already planned that. And if you just submit to his will and allow his spirit to work in your life, he is going to take you into those places. I've seen it in my own life. As I surrender to the Lord in the morning, Lord, whatever you want to do in my life, and I find myself, you know, it's, it's funny when you look back on your path of a day and you think like, wow, when I started out, <laughs> I was headed this way. You know, not that I don't have any plans when I wake up, but, you know, I was headed this way, but the Lord diverted me over here, and I had this conversation with this person. What an incredible thing that God did there. And, you know, you think like, wow, thank you, Lord, for allowing me to do that. Did I create that? No, he did. When? From before the foundation of the world. He was thinking of you, man. He was thinking about who you would become and how he could use you. So, oh, I'm going to put Tim here and this day, and I'm going to have him do this thing. And that goes for you too. What you need to understand here is that you are saved for good works, not by good works. It's not because you did anything good that you were saved. God saved you for good works, and your good works are a display of your salvation. James says it, you know, show me your faith, I'll show you my works. What does that mean? That means that faith and works go together, right? If you, if you believe in Christ, you're going to act like Christ. Jesus was mighty in word and deed, right? So will you be, if you're walking in him, you will be mighty in word and deed. You are saved to serve the body of Christ, folks. That is the reality. And, you know, the question is, are you doing that? Are you fulfilling your purpose? Well, I don't know what to do. Well, ask the Lord. He created the good works for you to do. Listen, he wants you to do something. He's telling you right here that he... He fashioned and formed you for good works. And, you know, it's not the good works of the past. We're not supposed to be living on old manna. Like it's for the good works that are for today. What is it today, Lord? What is it tomorrow? What do you want to do tomorrow? You know, it is literally God has something for you to do every moment of every day. Lord, will I fulfill it? And sometimes, listen, it's just in the mundane, everyday, ordinary things that you're doing that God, you know, shows up. That's the good work that he has for you to do. Don't miss it. Just be surrendered to him. You're his workmanship. He saved you so that you could walk in the works that he prepared beforehand. God has mapped it all out. Just surrender to that. Listen, here's, here's how I want to close this morning. Is this, if you are here today and you've never accepted Christ and you don't, you know, you're, you're thinking like grace sounds great, but you know, until you experience it, it's not going to be great. So today I'm saying, hey, if you haven't done that, do that today. You come to Christ. You accept Christ in your life. Recognize, first and foremost, as the Bible says, that you're a sinner, that you need a Savior, that Jesus Christ is that Savior, that he died for you, that he rose again from the dead for you. Hey, listen, I can lead you through a prayer or whatever, but simply this, it is a simple declaration to God that you are in desperate need of him, that you want to be changed and transformed. You want to be... Uh, be born again. You want to be a new creation. And, you know, the only way that you can do that is by believing in him. It's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a commitment to him. So you pray a prayer of recognizing that you're a sinner, that you need a savior, and that Jesus is that savior, that he died for you, that he rose again from the dead for you, and you put your hope in him today. And the Bible says all of heaven will be rejoicing because 
you will be born again. It's by grace through faith through Christ alone. Listen, without grace, none of that happens. Grace changes everything. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you so much, Lord, for doing the, all the work that you've done. Lord, as we continue to read through the book of Ephesians, Lord, we see just this incredible work that you have done. And, and more and more, I hope that we're seeing the volume of work that you've done, God. You've done it all. There's really nothing left for us to do except for to walk in Christ for the rest of our days if we're believers. Lord, for some of us here this morning, we've lost the path. Not that we lost our salvation or anything like that, but we are off track, Lord. And we're wondering just, you know, what it is that you're doing in our lives. And it's primarily because you're not doing what we want you to do, Lord. And I pray that you would just change the mindset this morning, that you would help us to surrender to your will. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that you will do, that you will do whatever it is that we want you to do. You're not a genie in a bottle. You're a sovereign God who has created great uh, works for us to walk in, and you have a plan for us, and we want to surrender to that plan this morning. Your grace changed everything in our lives, who we were, who we are, and who we will be. And so we ask you this morning, Lord, to just change our mind about this, that you would help us to surrender. And so if there's anyone here this morning that feels that burden on their heart, that God, I don't feel you, I don't sense you, I don't know what you're doing, I'm just going to ask you this morning, just raise your hand and say, Lord, I want to surrender to you. And listen, there's no embarrassment in that. I'm, I want God to do more in my life. Lord, I'll raise my hand to you. I want to surrender more to you, God. If there's anybody here this morning that feels the need to say, God, I just want to recognize the great work of grace that you've done in my life, and I, I need more of it today, just lift your hand. I want to pray for you. No embarrassment. God bless you. God bless you. Anyone else? God bless you. It's just a simple surrender to the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Listen, if that's you, you just, you just cry out to God and you just tell him, Lord, I'm surrendering right now. All of my humanity to you. Get my logic out of the way, Lord. Get my emotions out of the way, Lord. Get my will out of the way, God. That your will be done. I surrender to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, for the rest of us, God, just may you just continue to do a wonderful work in our hearts. May you just continue, Lord, to amaze us by the grace that you've given us. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.